I think anybody who writes a song that jumps that high needs to test it out at an 8 a.m. service before they publish it, right? <laughs> it's a good song, but <laughs> Lord bless you if you can get to those high notes this morning. <laughs> if you have your Bible open to Daniel 8, we're going to be looking at our next section here, next chapter in Daniel. That's page 745 in the Pew Bible, and as you make your way there, just a couple other reminders. Uh, tonight we have our care groups, or this afternoon, um, if, if you're not sure if you're having it, talk to your care group leader. This was kind of an optional Sunday. Uh, we are surveying our care groups. We're not looking to do a complete overhaul, but uh, there needs to be some adjustments with a few groups because they've grown and we have, have had new folks come. And so we're hoping to start a new group. Uh, and so um, we'll have our normal groups uh, this Sunday. And then next, uh, next month, hopefully we'll be able to contact everyone and, and have a new group start up, which is a good thing. Right, it's a good thing that we 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 divide, but yet we multiply, and uh, that will be happening next month. And then, just a reminder: at nine fifteen this morning, before Sunday school, we have a lot of things happening around Sunday school. Uh, we're going to have a, a brief informational meeting. Um, there's been a little bit change to our window discussion. We'll explain that uh, this morning, but just uh, that and a, another item to mention for you this morning. So that's at nine fifteen before Sunday school. We'll we'll. Make sure everyone knows that downstairs and make your way up here. And uh, just a few items to let you be aware of uh, this morning. So if you found your way to Daniel 8, let's pray. And then I'll read a portion of our passage and we'll look at this vision of Daniel. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the exalted one. Lord, forever and ever he will sit enthroned. Lord, you are giving him as the son of man who's coming with the clouds, dominion, authority, and eternal throne. Lord, we thank you for that. As we look around at the world around us and the rulers, the good, the bad, the rising, the falling of nations, the, the terrible things, but even the, the common grace things that have happened through human rule, Lord, that one day, Lord, the perfect ruler will come. And the anxiety and the fear and the persecution and, and the injustice will be done away with as we rejoice in the presence of Christ. Help us keep that in mind as we look at these things that may appear difficult to us, but Lord, in the end, you have everything in your hand. May we find comfort and hope in these. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Daniel chapter 8, I'm going to be reading verses 15 through 17 for us. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Daniel chapter 8 is another vision of Daniel. Verses or chapter seven through twelve are these uh, these compilation of visions and dreams that Daniel has as a prophet of God, and these dreams are specific. They involve the the sovereign plan of God at work in the nation of Israel, but more than that, through the end of time and how God's going to bring about His ultimate fulfillment of His kingdom. Daniel 7 is this broad brushstroke. These four beasts that come up out of the churning sea and they are nations. And the fourth beast is 
terrifying and unlike any of the other beasts. And from this beast comes a little horn, right? And this little horn wages war against God's people and, and against God himself. And, but he will be utterly cast down and he will be trampled on and he will be destroyed by the one, as it says, comes with the clouds of heaven like the son of man who comes before the ancient of days. And he has presented a kingdom, dominion, glory. This is Jesus. As Jesus returns again to the earth to to overthrow every human government, to set up his kingdom, the the hope, the the big picture in Daniel 7. But as we come to Daniel 8, it's it's a focusing in. It's a focusing in on two of the kingdoms and something in particular to the nation of Israel. And we need to keep that in mind, that though these visions are connected and they share a lot of the same imagery, This one, Daniel 8, fits within Daniel 7. As Daniel recounts for us, he says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So it's two years removed from his first vision. Two years since he received the first vision in Daniel 7. And he said that he took that vision in verse 28 of chapter 7 and kept it as a matter in his heart. And I believe that Daniel probably meditated and thought back to that often. In the midst of his work, of his life, of his prayers, of thinking, God, I remember you giving me this vision. Mulling it over again and again in his head. And now he has another one. And again, God reveals to Daniel something that is yet to come. Something that is in the future. And it's something related to these kingdoms that he has already heard about or seen in his previous vision. But in Daniel 8, he has a vision of a ram and a goat. Again, two beasts that God shows to him. And through these two animals and the representative horns that denote power and authority and rulers, God shows Daniel something concerning the nation of Israel. Our big idea this morning is this, is that God's revelation of coming persecution and punishment serves to warn and comfort his people while they faithfully endure. That's a mouthful. But let's look at God's revelation, his vision that he reveals to Daniel. It involves coming persecution and punishment. We had Tom read from Lamentations 3. Lamentations is, is, is written by Jeremiah, Jeremiah, and these Lamentations are songs crying out about the destruction of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah as they are taken into captivity into Babylon. Why? Because of their sin. God's chosen people, his chosen nation, have rebelled against God and they are being punished for their sin. The exile that Daniel is in and the nation is in is a result of their sin. They have not followed God. They have chosen idols. They have participated in idolatry and worshiping false gods. And they knew that this was the consequence. (laughs) The end of Deuteronomy, God reveals through Moses, if you follow me (laughs) because I've delivered you, because I've made you my people, if you follow me, there will be blessing. But if you reject me and go the way of idolatry, there will be punishment. And we see this played out here. This is what we're in the midst of. And so Daniel, in the midst of all this, is thinking, will there be an end to this? Will we return? What, what is the future for the nation of Israel, for God's chosen 
nation. Through this vision, Daniel is warned that something difficult is going to happen. But it's also a comfort because in the revelation of it by God, it reminds Daniel that God is in control, that God is allowing these things to happen, and that even in the midst of difficulty, we know that God is trustworthy. And so therefore, it helps us to faithfully endure. Daniel 7 is the broad brushstroke, the big setting for what's happening in these following chapters. But Daniel 8 narrows in to two nations that will make things difficult for the faithful follower of God. A leader of theirs will speak blasphemies, profane the temple, and inflict pain and suffering unlike anything before and probably unlike anything (laughs) until the Antichrist himself comes. And in these events, we see a template for the ultimate suffering under the hand of God's enemies, but the ultimate victory of God. So as we look at Daniel 8 here, it, it really breaks down in half. You have the vision, and then the explanation of the vision, and then we will have some application for us. So our first point is this, is that Daniel's vision is revealed to us. It's revealed to him, and by way of him recording it, reveals it to us. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. So this happens between chapters 4 and chapters 5 again in the chronology of the book of Daniel. And he sees a vision. And this is a vision that he is in Susa the citadel. Susa is a, is a city. It once was a powerful city uh, in the area of Iran, modern-day Iran, but then it fell into disrepair and is conquered several times. But then Susa will be lifted back up to prominence during the reign of the Persians. It's going to become one of their main cities. It actually became the summer residence of their kings, Susa. Excuse me, the winter residence of their kings. And so Daniel, in this vision, is in Susa. Now, there's some question. Is he literally in Susa when he has the vision? Or in his vision, does he see himself in Susa? It really could go either way. It doesn't affect the meaning at all, but it's, it really could go any way. But as he sees himself in Susa, he looks around, and he is by the Ulai Canal. This is the main river that would go through the city of Susa and the area, bringing water, uh, allowing for it to prosper. Most cities in the Near East were built near a water source. Otherwise, it would be very difficult to live there. So he's in Susa, near the river, and this is what he sees. He looks up, verse 3, he raises his eyes, and he saw an animal, a ram, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. If you could picture a ram, many different types, but you think of the two large horns on a ram that are used for, uh, for showing dominance and uh, the different animalistic traits that God has given a ram, the horns are a very prominent thing. And he saw this ram, and it had two horns, and both horns were, were high, they were large. But one was higher than the other. What is this denoting? Well, it seems that as you look at this ram, it is one, but the two horns, one is larger than the other. And we will see here in the interpretation that this ram is the nation of the Medes and the Persians. If you think back uh, to uh, the previous chapter of the bear 
the beast like a bear, and it was lifted up on one side. It denotes a single thing, but it was yet different. It was comprised of two parts. And here we, we see that this ram has two horns, but one was high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. So it seems as this ram has two horns, they're both large, but one became higher than the other, and it grew in prominence later. And this ram, what was it was doing? It was charging westward. So from the east, it was charging to the west, and it was charging to the north, and it was charging to the south. We see the direction of this ram. It is not charging to the east, but it's coming from the east. That's its location. And it's charging westward and northward and southward. So it's heading in a particular direction. And no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. We know later from verse 20 where the interpretation is given that this is the nation of the Medes and the Persians. This nation was comprised of two peoples, the Medes and the Persians, and as they formed their alliance together at the beginning, the Medes were the more powerful of the two, but the Persians grew in power to the point where most people refer to this nation as the Persian nation. You often don't hear the Medes and the Persians, but just the Persians. This is Cyrus the Great. This is Xerxes and Artaxerxes or Ahasuerus from Esther. It is this nation. And this nation grew and conquered the Near East so much so that it even launched campaigns to try and conquer Greece. If you're familiar with your your Greek history, there are different battles that took place between the the combined city-states of Greece and the Persians. The Battle of Thermopylae. That has grown in legend. King Leonidas and his 300 Spartans standing against hundreds of thousands of Persians. There were more than 300 Greeks. There were only 300 Spartans, but several thousand Greeks. But they, they held them off for a time. Then you have the Battle of uh, Salamis, where the Persian navy was destroyed. And, and the Battle of Marathon. The Battle of Marathon, it's where we get the length for a marathon, where a runner ran the distance of 26.2 miles, and legend has it that he ran that in one hour. That's what the legend states, that he ran 26.2 miles from Marathon, I believe, to Athens, and that's where we get the distance of 26.2 miles. Fun fact there. Um, I don't think anybody can run it in, a mile, in an hour. That would be <laughs> uh, some embellishment through history. But Persia spread out from the east in modern-day Iran, and they, they went west towards Greece. They went north into Turkey. They went south into Egypt. You see the direction of their expansion. And they were great. Nobody could stand before them. But as he saw this great nation, he saw another animal, a male goat. And this goat came from the west. So you see the opposite directions here. And this goat came across the face of the whole earth. He is covering the entire earth without touching the ground. Have you ever ran so fast that you felt like you were flying? No. <laughs> I could say no as well. <laughs> Many times it feels like the earth is grabbing my feet. <laughs> but the, the fact here that he looks at this goat and it looks like he's, he's flying, he's not even touching the ground, denotes speed. It just happens so quickly. And he comes from the west and he covers the whole 
face of the earth without touching the ground. And the goat, it says, has a conspicuous or very prominent horn between his eyes. Now, if you would have one male goat and had one horn right between his eyes, you would say, this is the ugliest unicorn I've ever seen, right? But as you remember, horns denote kingdoms or kings and demonstrate power. So he has one king, a very large horn in the middle between his eyes. And he came, this goat, to the ram with two horns, which he first saw Daniel did standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him with powerful wrath. He was angry. And Daniel came close and he saw the ram. And he was enraged against him. And he struck the ram and broke his two horns. This male goat with his one horn struck the ram. He was enraged. He was angry at him. He was angry at him. And he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him for the ram had no power to stand before him. We know for verse 21 that this goat is the nation of Greece, particularly Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great took over when he was the age of 23 from his father, who was Philip of Macedon. And his father, Philip, came and united the Greek states under one banner. And then Alexander took it, and the nation just exploded, conquering almost the whole known world from Greece all the way to India with great speed in a matter of just years. It says once Alexander reached the Indus River in Egypt, he broke down and wept for there was no other land to conquer. This goat is the nation of Greece. And Alexander is that horn. And he would be very angry. There was quite the bitterness between the Greeks and the Persians for the the Persians had inflicted much damage on the Greeks in their battle against them. So there was, there was no love lost between those two. They hated each other. And you see that in the wrath that is shown here. So Alexander comes and he became exceedingly great, verse 8. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Alexander died just into his 30s. This great, powerful military leader, yet he died so young. Most Historians believe he died from extreme drunkenness and malaria combined (laughs) because he was reveling in his glories and he had nothing else to conquer. And so he died, but his his sons were young and his sons were actually murdered. And so who's going to take over for him? Well, we read here that the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, the death of Alexander. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns. So four horns themselves that were large, towards the four winds of heaven. So that one horn turned into four. And we know from history that Alexander's nation, the Greek empire, was split into four, into his four generals. And they took different areas to the four winds of heaven. One took the area of Greece, and then you have uh, Egypt and Palestine, and then Turkey, They're, they're spread out. And there was even warring among them. So this is where we're at. But out of those four, out of one of them, out of one of those nations, those kings, came a little horn. Here we see another little horn. This little horn is different than the previous little horn in chapter 7. Chapter 7's little horn comes from the fourth beast, the fourth nation. This little horn is coming from the third nation, from the nation of Greece. 
So there will be a lot of overlapping with the character, with the events, with the activities of the little horn, but they are not directly the same person. But you could say they are cut from the same cloth, from the same mold, and we'll see that shown here. This little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, and it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So to read this and think, okay, what is this talking about? We need to take a step back and look at the interpretation, which we'll get to here in a moment, but also overlaying what God's word says and what do we see reflected in history? What patterns from history do we see that prove God's word here? Now we know from history, the, the rise of the four nations after Alexander's death. But what is this great ruler, this little horn from one of the nations? Who could it be? Well, let's look at the characteristics. He grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. South is towards Egypt in that area. And towards the east is, is, is to Syria, um, towards Iraq. And then the glorious land is understood to be Palestine, to Jerusalem. Modern day Israel, the promised land. And so it grows great this way. So is there a ruler that came from a small beginnings that grew great that had conquerings in these areas? And yes, there's one. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He is a ruler from the Seleucid Empire. And he had victories over Egypt, over uh, Syria, and in the promised land against the Jews. He started from nothing. He wasn't in the line of the rulers, but yet through political intrigue and some backstabbing, literal backstabbing, he grew in power and took over the rule of one of Alexander's four nations. And he made war against the Jews. This is recorded in Jewish history and in other histories by Herodotus uh, and other Greek historians. And he grew so powerful that he even grew to the host of heaven. Their idea there is that he grew so great that he sought to wage war against God. And some of the hosts and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now we understand that this is a human man that Daniel is looking at here. This is what's being talked about. These stars, this host, would be the people of God, the followers of God, the host of heaven, his followers. And there is recorded in histories by Herodotus and other Jewish historians that under Antiochus, tens of thousands of Jews were murdered and killed. He inflicted severe pain and punishment on the Jews. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. His name is Antiochus, but his, you could say his last name or surname Epiphanes was added by himself. It means the enlightened one, meaning the deified one. Antiochus set himself up as God, claiming to be God against the one true God. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, verse 11, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. He's talking here, Daniel is seeing this, that the worship, the offering and the sacrifices in the sanctuary were stopped and it was overthrown. What does this mean? It means that the temple offerings and sacrifices that were happening were stopped 
and the temple itself was desecrated. And we know from history that Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, tore down the curtain, and where the altar was, he erected a statue of Zeus. And he claimed that only Zeus and himself were to be worshipped in the temple because he hated God and the Jews that much. Daniel continues to watch this little horn, this man, and says a host will be given over it to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. There are records of Antiochus taking the scrolls of the law out and literally burning them and shredding them. That may be the literal interpretation or it could mean the, the overarching idea that he is throwing down the truth of who God is and the worship of him and setting himself up in place. Daniel witnesses all this. And this little horn will act and prosper. It will grow in power and might. Then he heard, verse 13, a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. So Daniel, as he's witnessing this vision, hears two angels, and these angels ask, how long will this be from the desecration of the temple until it's restored, until this enemy of God is done away with? And the answer is this, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So let's take a step back here. Medes and Persia grow great, but they are conquered by the Greek empire and the male goat. One king, that king dies, split into four. From one of those four kingdoms comes a little horn, a king, a ruler, who sets himself up as great and sets himself against God and his people. And in doing so, he desecrates the temple he turns worship to himself. He does away with the truth of God and his word. And he stops the worship in the temple. How long will this last? And the answer is for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, the question here is this time frame. Would this be 2,300 days of evening and morning sacrifices? So is it 2,300 or is it 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices combined? So therefore, it would be 1,150 days. I think my math is right. Forgive me if it's wrong. I'm a pastor. <laughs> is it 2,300 days or 1,150 days? It's a good question. But we know when the ending is. We know the ending is when the temple is restored, when it's cleansed and the offerings resume. The question then, where does it begin? If you figure out the evenings and days and there's some question as to what calendar is used here, but the 2,300 evenings and mornings is roughly six years, give or take. And if you do it the half, uh, if you do it the half numbering, it would be about three years. So if you Look back at history when the temple was cleansed and what events would maybe be the beginning of it. There are a couple things that could qualify. Antiochus Epiphanes murdered the rightful 
chief uh, high priest. Uh, about six years before the, temp- or before the sanctuary was restored, there were about three years before the sanctuary was restored is when he set up the idol of Zeus. So there are a couple different ways that you could look at it. But what we know is that during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, this little horn, the sacrifices were done. They were stopped. The temple was profaned. But yet, as he was defeated, it is restored. It is restored in the 160s B.C. If you're familiar with Jewish history, this would be the Maccabean Revolt. The, uh, the Apocrypha is part of uh, some Bibles, uh, not inspired, but still are historical books. In there are the book of First and Second Maccabees. First and Second Maccabees is the record of the Maccabean Revolt during the time frame of this Greek rule. It's when they fought against this Greek ruler. This is where the festival of Hanukkah comes from. Uh, that celebration of the restoration of the temple, of the, the, the cleansing of it from these pagan oh, idols. And we know that it was restored. So we see how this plays in here with what is happening. So this is the vision that is given to Daniel. Now, Daniel is on this side of the events, looking forward, and he would have lots of questions. We have the benefit on being on the backside, being able to look back at God's word and seeing how God's word is played out in human history. But Daniel asked for an interpretation, and that's our second point. The vision is interpreted. Verse 15, when Daniel had seen this vision, He sought to understand it. And there was a man who stood before him having the appearance of a man. But he heard a man's voice and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Most people understand that voice to be the Lord's. And he is commanding Gabriel, the angel, to communicate with Daniel. Gabriel, the name means uh, man of God. And he is a messenger. What other messages did Gabriel deliver? Really awesome ones, right? He came to Mary. (laughs) The provision of the announcement of Christ's birth, Gabriel was involved with. He's one of two named angels in the Bible. We're going to meet the other angel here in a little bit. uh, The other angel named is Michael, the archangel. And uh, we'll meet him here in the next few chapters. But Gabriel is told to explain the vision to Daniel. Daniel's so overcome with the vision and with the word spoken to him that he fell into a deep sleep. In a sense, he, he fainted, my face to the ground. But this angel touched him and made him stand up. And he said, behold, I'll make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. That indignation is the idea of outpouring of wrath. And he says, it shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now we read that phrase and we think, oh, the end times, right? The end of days. That phrase is a generic phrase used to denote the ending of something. So we could read this and think, we're jumping all the way to the end of time. Well, that's not necessarily the case right here. He's talking about the end of this persecution of how it's going to come about, what is happening here. And so Gabriel recounts to Daniel the interpretation. 
Verse 20, as for the ram that you saw, the two horns, kings of Media and Persia. Pretty easy. The goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between its eyes is the first king. That's Alexander, the great king. As for the horn that was broken in the place which four rose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. The four subsequent nations were never quite as powerful as Alexander's combined unified nation. But at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, there's some discretion or some discussion there. Is that the transgressors in the Greek nation or is it those in the nation of Israel that are still rebelling and being idolatrous towards God? Could go either way. Both would lead to the same end, the persecution uh, of, of what's happening here. A king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. This is somebody who is, who is cunning, and he'll, he'll refer to this again in verse 25. Who knows riddles, right? He's smart. He knows political intrigue. His power will be great. And he will grow, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So here we see him set against God's people, the Jews. And he destroys many of them. And deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. He'll come through and, and kill many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, that is, that is uh, God himself, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So we see his end here. He shall be broken, but by no human hand. How did Antiochus Epiphanes die? He did not die in battle. He was not killed by another man. He literally, uh, historians record that he died, in a sense, because of fear and anxiety. And it actually happened after his forces were turned away in the Maccabean revolt where the Jews gained back control that he was in such utter despair that his life just gave out. So he wasn't killed by a human man, but rather his own anxiety, his own fear, his own despair. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. So he re First to the evenings and the mornings, this time frame for a certain amount of time from when either the high priest was killed or the desecration of the temple until it is restored. And he says, seal it up for it refers to many days from now. It refers to something in the future, about 400 years away still. Sealing it up is not hiding it, as we think, seal it up and keep it safe, but rather seal it up so it's, it's kept safe for the future. This isn't a hiding, but it's a sealing to preserve it to keep it for those who would come after. And Daniel was overcome, and he laid sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Even Daniel had trouble understanding what was this about. This little horn, as we look back at history, seek to look at God's word and understand it in light of the context of what we can understand through the prophecy, through the imagery, through what God explains to us, through Medes and Persians and, and then the kingdom of Greece, of who this is. And it's remarkable that when you look back at the account of what happened around 160 to 169 BC in the nation of Israel with Antiochus Epiphanes of how it matches up. That this little horn, this persecutor, this one who sets himself up as God and desecrates the temple, 
how it matches. So what can we learn from this and how can this be applied to us? So as we take a step back, we, we look at this and we think, why would God give this vision to Daniel? What's the benefit? Couldn't it just all play out? Well, one, understanding the vision, it's a comfort to endure difficulties. As the nation would have this and recount this, they would know that difficulty is coming. When you know something hard is going to come, it helps you endure it. Right? You know it's going to be hard, so you're prepared. You're ready. You know the end. The comfort to endure difficulties. Just in the New Testament, as Paul and the other writers say, you will be persecuted for your faith. Things will be hard. As Jesus suffered, so you will suffer. So when we encounter it, we're ready. Not that we have it all together or it's not going to be hard, but rather we're not caught unawares. It's comfort to endure difficulties. Second, it shows God's omniscience for the future. If God is God, he knows what's going to happen. And here he reveals it. And along with his omniscience, we know the trustworthiness of God's word. We don't have to struggle to put things together to see how this has played itself out. But God is faithful, and in his revealed word, we see how it's come to pass. God's word is trustworthy because God is omniscient and all-knowing. And then lastly, as we take a step back and look at this little horn, this little ruler, we understand in Daniel 7, the little horn is the coming Antichrist. But we see the parallels. We see the template of the ultimate enemies of God. This ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, is a pattern for the eventual Antichrist. And we'll see this played out in chapters 10 through 12 as well, where they're contrasted and compared together, but how they are similar. It's the same vein. The Bible is full of these patterns, these types that happen over and over again. And Antiochus is, is this almost kind of forerunner, this template of what the ultimate Antichrist is going to be, this one who's set against God. He persecutes God people, God's people. He uh, kills many. He, he seeks power in almost a supernatural way. He sets himself up as God, but his ultimate end is the same, destruction. He's not going to rule forever. He's not going to overthrow God, but rather he himself will be done away with. This ruler is a pattern for the eventual Antichrist. And we'll see this pattern again and again here in Daniel. But as we think of this vision of the ram and the goat, of these two kingdoms and of this man who has set himself up as God, we should be comforted knowing that suffering's coming, but yet God has a plan through them. We should rejoice in God's omniscience and the trustworthiness of his word, how history confirms the word of God. And lastly, we need to be aware of this template of those set against God who set themselves up in their pride and the ultimate enemy of God, the Antichrist, who will become great in his mind but will be done away with. And all of this goes back to reaffirm the vision in Daniel 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. No matter what human kingdoms or kingdoms of Satan that arise against God, that's the kingdom that will endure. That's the kingdom that will reign. And that's the kingdom that you and I, through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, are privileged to be a part of. So we can endure, we can have hope, we can trust.
the promises of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a difficult passage, but the explanation in your own word and wise men and women who have studied and explained and history that proves and Lord, help us to rest in your sovereignty and your omniscience and the trustworthiness of your word and the fact that you in the end will win. And Lord, as we know, we don't know everything. Let us rest in your hands that do. Lord, we love you. We pray for all these things in your son's name.